Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. North American markets have continued to be choppy throughout October, accelerated by a hotter-than-expected U.S. CPI result and the beginning of earnings season. Joining us today to look at what we can expect from the rest of earnings season and to provide his insights on value investing is Institutional Portfolio Manager Naveed Rahman. Naveed works alongside Joel Tillinghast, Morgan Peck, Sam Chemovitz, and Salem Hart on Fidelity Global Intrinsic Value Class, and today joins host Brian Borsakowski. Naveed shares his outlook on the markets and a positioning update for the fund, among other topics. Today's podcast was recorded on October 14th, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Naveed, thanks for being here. Brian, great to be here. So it's been hard out there for a value manager for about a decade now. Um, How are you feeling today? Better today and, and, and better year to date, uh, you know, than, than we have for the last decade or so. It, it's good to remember that over long periods of time, Brian, value stocks do outperform in Canada and the U.S. and around the world. But they have had a barren decade with, you know, ultra loose monetary policy and very low rates sort of, you know, flattering the um, the prospects of, of growth companies. You know, that, that, that seems to have decidedly changed in the last uh, 18 months or so. And by the way, we don't think it's like, you know, it's it's the end of that rotation either. Right. So maybe just give me a bit of the lay of the land. How have valuations come down and, you know, where are we at today, uh, you know, from a value perspective? Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and so I think um, most of the market move that we have seen so far this year, and I want to acknowledge it's been a painful year for stock investors and for bond investors, uh, which is an unusual circumstance. Uh, most of the drawdown so far, Brian, has been really the multiple contraction, especially among very expensive stocks that have gone from you know hitherto unbelievable levels to only maybe modestly expensive. So you know I think the valuation compression has driven most of the market um, reactions so far. Earnings have begun to, but not materially reset down yet, and we think that is potentially another leg of the stool. You know that has yet to really fully play out. So, you know, we um, you know, are certainly watching uh, the stock movements and, and looking for relative opportunities to upgrade the portfolio. But you know, we don't think we're towards the end of this of this um, earnings reset in light of the sort of the inflation that you alluded to at the beginning. You know, we we, we do believe that we're just we're in for a there is a higher than average likelihood that there is a regime change going on here. And stocks will have to, the ones we like, will have to navigate a more difficult, higher interest rate, more inflationary environment. And I think one of those things, one of the impacts of that is that the traditional playbook that all of us have gotten accustomed to, professional investors, market participants, even the central banks, to say, you know, at the first sign of trouble, 
you know, open the spigot and, and have loose monetary policy and lower rates. Like that's been true the last 15 years or so, but we don't think that's a likely way this plays out. So a quick reversion back to the growth darlings of the last decade, you know, once again, saving the day, we, we think that's like a less likely outcome because central banks in Canada, in the US, in Europe have much less room to maneuver and to, and to go back to easy monetary policies as they did in the past. So when you say regime change, I mean, so it sounds like, are, are you saying something perhaps a little bit more permanent or just that we have more room to, you know, where there's more room for value to, you know, for PEs to come down? What does that mean exactly when you say regime yeah, change? Yeah, that's a fair question. So, I mean, I think if if we have been accustomed to living and operating in a world with inflation running between one and 2%, we think that the bottom up research that we do, what our economists tell us is that inflation, you know, may be near peaking, may have peaked, is on a gradual track down, but may average a number, you know, higher than the 2% we've been accustomed to. So if theoretically we're, we're in an arena, Brian, where inflation is averaging kind of more like three to 4% for a, for a number of years, that's just a different operating environment for companies. Uh, than than a lower rate uh, a lower inflationary environment. You know, companies have to navigate a higher inflation, higher interest rate environment, and and value stocks. You know, benefit from being shorter duration stocks, if you will. Right, more of the value of value companies is in today and tomorrow's earnings, not earnings eight to ten to fifteen years out. Um, and and you know, our, our, our universe has just a wider representation in financials, energy, materials, which are cyclical industries that can grind out reasonably good earnings growth in, in this kind of environment. It's a much more difficult environment if I'm the CEO of some fast growth tech company that has no profits today, no profits tomorrow, and has the hope of a really large market and some meaningful profits eight or nine years from now. Those earnings are getting you know, discounted at higher and higher rates. They are worth less today than they used to be a year ago. And by the way, the funding environment to help me get to the point eight to nine years from now when I have profits is a lot more challenging as well. So, I mean, I guess what I mean is that our kinds of companies, you know, it's not a party, it's not an easy environment for anybody, but on a relative basis, I'd rather own the kinds of health insurance companies we own, the financials that we own, the energy companies that we own, because this is this is a little bit more of a favorable environment for them. And that, that's sort of what I meant by, by, by the change. Great. So, so let's talk a bit about some of those opportunities. So where are you seeing value? Are, are there specific sectors or what parts of the market look attractive to you today? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, you know, we have been overweight uh, the energy sector for, you know, uh, probably 18 months at this point and, and financials as well is an overweight for us. Uh, we, we own banks, uh, insurance companies, consumer finance companies and, and, and on financials, you know, you, you alluded to the fact that some of the big banks reported today. Um, so we're, we're closely watching that. You know, from the research that we are seeing, th this might be a, a better than average environment for banks. Typically, you know, financials going into a economically volatile period with uh, with a recession looming on the horizon, that's a typically a challenging time for banks. So we're overweight knowing that, given the fact that the banks are much better capitalized today than they were for the pri prior two crises. Secondly, there has not been the same level of excessive lending broadly in the banking sector as there was, uh, you know, in, in the late 2000s before the global financial crisis. 
And thirdly, by our math, the benefit from higher interest rates, which translates into higher net interest income, higher net interest margins, that benefit has, has a possibility of being a bigger benefit than the headwind from rising credit costs to the economic environment get more choppy. So you know, we're actually constructive on, 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 on financials. We're constructive on energy in the short to medium term. We don't have our blinders on. We understand that, you know, 10 to 12 years from now, the world will be consuming a lot less carbon. Energy will have a smaller place in, in the global economy. But the journey between now and then is long and the free cash flow between now and then is substantial. So we are long, uh, long energy, especially uh, natural gas and U.S. natural gas companies. Those are the areas that we're finding, finding a lot of opportunity. I can talk about where we're not constructive if, if you want to go there. Yeah, sure. I, yeah, I mean, I, I think um, this this environment that we're talking about, Brian, is not uniquely or is not equally beneficial or harmful to all companies, right? So real estate is a sector that we have been generally underweight and we're quite underweight today. If you think about companies in the real estate investment sector, their business models depend on constantly going back to the capital markets and raising debt financing and equity financing. And you don't even have to be a, 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 a financial advisor to know that the cost of funding has gone up a lot. So for REITs, the operating environment is a lot more challenging today than it was a year ago. And, and it may remain challenging for the foreseeable future just because of their they have to dividend out, you know, 95 plus percent of their earnings by, by virtue of the tax structure that the, the REITs are in. So they have to constantly go back to the markets to raise raise debt and, and, the, and the cost of debt is much higher today than it was. So it's a really challenging environment for, for REITs. Um, and so we're using an underweight there to source overweights in financials, energy and healthcare. Actually, I guess it's one other sector I, I didn't mention, but um, that's healthcare is, is an area where um if I step back, the global intrinsic value portfolio that I work on with my colleagues um, uh, in Canada, you know, is, is really a value and quality portfolio. So we're not just trying to buy the cheapest companies. Uh, we are trying to buy cheap companies that are consistently more profitable, generate cash on a consistent basis. Uh, and that universe of value and quality um, gives us a lot of opportunity in healthcare, health insurance, biotech companies, you know, are examples of, of what we own in the sector. Great. Yeah, just back to playbooks. I mean, it, it sounds a little bit different than maybe what happened years ago. You know, this economic uncertainty move into those very defensive sectors, of which, we, you know, real estate was one. And, yeah. and now we're talking about energy. So, um, you know, that that seems to be uh, maybe a bit of a different playbook. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think it, it's, it's a good, good topic to focus on because, you know, playbooks, playbooks are only as useful as the current circumstances warrant. Right. So. I totally agree with you. In, in in nine out of ten, you know, recessionary periods or economic volatility, you would not want to be overweight energy, financials, and underweight REITs. But you have to react to the opportunities that are in front of you and, and not go to a playbook that has worked historically, but the valuations don't support. Uh, you know, energy is only in this spot because it had underperformed for, you know, it, a decade. I mean, it, it, we are not too far away from a three-day period where energy had negative spot prices <laughs> around the world, and there has been a decade of underinvestment in energy in in the U.S., in Europe, even in Canada. The, the level of capex in energy has been very low, and so we have this. You know, our our energy analysts um, build very detailed supply-demand models, and our view is that you know supply-demand 
even notwithstanding a recession, will remain pretty tight for, for the next several years. Again, that's different from having a perspective that energy is a buy and hold sector that you're going to have for the next 10 years. But that's not what we're saying here. You, you want to be really mindful of the time horizon, keep that overweight on a short leash and be invested in the companies that are doing what they say they're doing, which is they are have, they're enjoying a period of extra normal profits right now, really high free cash flow. The companies we invested in are not reinvesting in a meaningful way back because the investing environment for energy is quite uncertain. If, if you think about it, typically when energy prices are high, you know, companies in the private sector, national oil companies around the world are falling over themselves to invest in energy because returns are high. But there's much less investment than, than typically has been because you can't go to the board of a U.S. energy company today and say, you know, I'd like to invest in a refiner because refining margins are really wide. It takes 10 to 12 years to build a refiner and the payback is 15 to 17 years long. There are few financially savvy backers that are going to say, oh, that's fantastic. Please, please put a put a refiner uh, in, in, in Louisiana or Texas. And I'm looking forward to getting the return in 15 years because the demand environment is so uncertain 15 years out. So we're in this really interesting environment for energy where prices are high, but the reinvestment is actually not that high because it is a really uncertain environment long term. Which, you know, in a really interesting way, makes it a fantastic environment to be, to be invested in energy, despite the fact that it's been a performing sector. Right. How do you view market cap in this environment? Um, are you focusing on the smaller end? What does that look like to you? Yeah. And, and I think one of the beauties of, of our global intrinsic value portfolio is that it's really an open ended portfolio. Right. We we go to wherever in the world is the gives us the best combination of value and quality. We have a bias towards sort of small and mid-cap type companies. That's the sweet spot of the portfolio. But if there are outsized opportunities elsewhere, you know, we'll take advantage of those as well, right? So financials and energy, you know, are two overweights for us, Brian, as we were talking about. And there are two sectors where we have a fair bit of uh, holdings up and down the market cap spectrum. We own some really large cap financial and energy companies because they, they, they represent tremendous value to us. But we're not, you know, we're not going to be there forever. We, we, we'll sort of move, move up and down. So, so I guess in, in a way, it's 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 yes and yes. Like we will go up cap, we'll go down cap, and uh, and we'll really go to sort of flex to where the opportunities are. So on the on the large value companies that you're looking at, what do you think is their capacity to pay an increased dividends? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, we we don't have a a, a per se dividend mandate in the portfolio. But by virtue of what we're seeing in the opportunity space, our dividend yields, you know, is actually higher than that of the market by probably 100 basis points. So we are, without explicitly trying to hit a dividend yield target, delivering a dividend yield above that of our benchmark by about 100 basis points. And um, and it's uh, it's interesting, sort of the the places of fastest dividend growth in the market the last year is unsurprisingly energy. Uh, and, and so you know. There's a huge capacity to pay dividends in energy, and that's a sector where we actually really actively encourage dividends and share buybacks, because the alternative to that would be spending money on capital expenditures, which we just talked about, you know, might not be the wisest move given the payback period entailed in energy. And then the other thing it prevents the management companies from doing is, is doing 
what uh, what management teams are prone to do, which is buy their competitors at the peak of the market at peak prices. So we don't want our energy companies to be buying their competitors. We don't want them to be uh, investing massively in expensive projects. Uh, we recognize that we're in a period of abnormally high energy profits, and uh, you know we think that on average, and individual cases are different. On average, it's prudent to dividend the share, the the extra extra profit back, um, and have opportunistic buybacks when that makes sense. Now, that doesn't apply to every other sector, right? The consumer discretionary sector is is is, is a place of uh, where the, where there's there's been a lot of pain. The market is very concerned about how inflation is affecting the consumer, the prospect of a recession, and how that might affect um, um, consumer spending going forward. And so, you know, our advice to consumer discretionary companies is not to boost their dividend now. It, it's to take a prudential approach and, and maintain sort of a really strong, healthy balance sheet because it's going to be a more challenging operating environment than it has been, you know, the, the, the last year or so. So just digging into the portfolio a bit more, um, I was interesting to see that about, I, if I got this number right, about 15% or so was uh, weighted to Japan. Tom yeah. Stevenson and I spoke a couple of days ago, and he also seemed to be interested in Japan. So why why that weighting and, and what are your thoughts on that part of the Yeah, world? absolutely. It's, uh, you know, if we like value and quality, um, the market that represents greatest abundance of value and quality stocks is Japan. You know, it's just a very large market of, 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 of thousands and thousands of really interesting companies. There are, you know, I think more than 150 or 200 companies that are net cash. Um, so they have more cash on their balance sheet, uh, you know, than, than, than all the debt that they have. Um, and in many cases, the market cap and, and the cash on the balance sheets are actually not too far away. So there's extraordinary value uh, in, in Japan. And so we have an overweight for a number of years and uh, and we continue to find that market attractive now we're not you know we're not cognizant of what's 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 happening here i mean we can't talk about japan without talking about currency this has been a year of massive us dollar strength against every other currency you know around the world but most especially against japan i mean the japanese currency has has derated uh in, in a historical way so while most of our Japanese companies have actually had really good operating performance, have delivered uh, uh, as expected kind of the earnings growth and free cash flow growth that we expect, the currency devaluation has sort of obliterated the returns. Now, we're not macro investors and we don't play currencies. We invest it in an unhedged way. But what our research tells us is, and we have um, some currency experts at Fidelity that help us understand this, is when a currency, a developed currency like Japan goes really sharply in one direction for a while, more often than not, it'll have a have a bounce back and mean revert. So a lot of our Japanese companies, uh, by the way, Brian, also have costs in, in yen and have uh, revenues around the world in Asia, Europe, and the US. And so a declining, a depreciating yen and an appreciating dollar is actually helpful to them from a margin perspective. So you know, we're, we're sticking to our investments. Um, we don't know when, but at some point, the Japanese yen will stop its historic slide and, and stabilize. And, and who knows if the central bank in Japan eventually follows Canada, the U.S. and Europe in gradually raising rates to combat the inflation that we're seeing globally, that could provide a huge boost uh, uh, to, to the currency. 
Again, that's not what we're playing for, but that would be an additional benefit to our Japanese holdings uh, in, in the portfolio. Right. So and to come back to this side of the world, uh, the U.S., um, I saw also about 49 percent of the portfolio. I'm sure it's always um, a large portion. It is the U.S. But what opportunities or how are you viewing the U.S. market today? Yeah. And again, you know, if you're a value conscious investor, you have to look at the U.S. market with skeptical eyes. The U.S. large, mid and small caps have outperformed their large, mid and small cap international peers by a country mile for, I think, 13 years at this point. So the starting valuations are less compelling in the U.S. than they are in almost every market around the world, which is why even though we have almost 50 percent of the portfolio in the U.S., it represents our largest country underweight from an active allocation perspective. We are, you know, call it 14, 15% underweight the US and finding better opportunities, as we discussed in Japan, you know, carefully in Europe, uh, in places like Taiwan, Korea. Uh, and so again, when we go outside the US for small and mid cap companies, not going because the U.S. company is trading at 20 times earnings and the Korean companies at 18 times. Oftentimes, we find equally compelling companies with a 50, 60 percent valuation spread. So you, you see a U.S. comp at 20 and you see a Japanese company at nine times earnings with a similar, you know, from our perspective, earnings and free cash flow growth profile. When we see such massive divergences, that's when we kind of step into the opportunity because, you know, you're taking on currency risk, you're taking on, um, you know, regulatory risk when you, when, you, when you sort of leave North America. So we're cognizant of that, but the valuation spreads are really wide. And if history is any guide, the perspective 10 years might be more attractive outside the U.S. than it has been inside the U.S. Great. Uh, there's always been a large number of holdings in your portfolio. Can you speak to the benefits that you find, how you manage it? Do you anticipate being more concentrated or staying more diversified in this environment? Yeah, no, it, it's it's absolutely a fair question. It, it you know the, the portfolio in Canada has has a little bit over 500 holdings, and we have had around that uh, number of holdings since inception in 2015. And I might add that our sister portfolio in the U.S. called Low Price Stock has a 30-year history with this large sort of amount of stock holdings in its entire history. So we, we do it deliberately, uh, Brian, and I'll say that we benefit from a deep research staff here. So we have a hundred, over 150 fundamental analysts in Boston, London, Tokyo, Hong Kong, um, Toronto, and we have quantitative analysts that help us screen for opportunities. So we, we uncover lots of interesting opportunities. Now, the reason some holdings are five and 10 basis points and not you know, 30, 50 or 100 basis points in the portfolio is usually a function of two or three things. One is liquidity. So when we find a really interesting you know, toy company in Greece or um, you know, uh, a brewery in Thailand that is cash generative and cheap, but our traders say you can only buy, you know, 10 basis points of the of this company, given the size of the portfolio and the size of the company. Many fund managers will say, forget it. You know, we're, we're not going to go there. It's not worth it. What we'll say is we're going to hold a collection of these really interesting, cheap, high quality cash generative companies. Each of them might be 10 basis points on their own. But the collection of 200 of these will actually add up to 20 percent of the portfolio. And, and, and interestingly, when we did a historical analysis of our portfolio in the U.S., we found that 
Our big positions added value in, in that they outperformed the benchmark. Our medium positions added a little bit more value and our tiny positions added the most value. So there is a, when you find the kinds of stocks we're looking for and they're illiquid, you get an extra boost from owning these companies. You have to sort of have Fidelity's patience and we have a dedicated trading team that works just with this portfolio. So, you know, they don't love us all the time because in, in an example of that Thai brewer, I think it took us four months to build a 10 basis point position. And then it took us six months to exit that position when, when we decided to sell. We're okay with that. Our trader doesn't love it, but it's very helpful to the portfolio from a, from our excess return perspective. And so we'll continue to do that. There's not a line in the sand that says we're going to always have 510 holdings or what have you, but you can expect the portfolio to be, you know, to have a large number of holdings in the four to 500 range on a pretty consistent basis. Um, uh -oh. If we're in a high inflation interest rate environment, the high interest rate environment like we were in the 70s, um, is it possible that we could see a prolonged period of flat or sideways markets? Yeah, so I, I think, you know, what the what the data will tell you is, in a word, it is a tougher environment for stocks and bonds when interest rates are higher. You know, the the mathematically, usually the multiple comes down, the equity risk premium goes up. But I'm a glass half full guy, and I'll say that that's the glass half empty. The glass half full is it's a really good environment for active stock picking, right? So when I can find the Thai brewer that's growing earnings at, you know, 12% a year over a five-year period with a starting valuation of eight times earnings, it's a really interesting environment for us. And conversely, the last 10 years, you know, until maybe 2020, 2021, has been a much more challenging environment because you know, a low rate environment, Brian, lifted all boats. And in fact, it lifted the most speculative boats the most. So I, I you know, I'm not going to make a promise about the future, but I'll just say that I am much more confident of our ability to pick stocks and outrun a market that is delivering sort of modest, low single digit returns, you know, over a three to five year period. That That's a really interesting environment for us because we, we have a, a whole host of companies that I think can do better than that. And, and, and the starting valuations are very attractive. Our, our portfolio is, you know, PE today is less than 10 on a forward basis. So there are many investors out there that are seeing their stocks go down where the multiple is coming down and the earnings are coming down. We don't really have to worry as much about the multiple coming down because we didn't overpay for these companies to begin with. So this is a better environment for us than one where the market is compounding at 19%. And, and the uh, and the speculative stocks are the ones driving it. Uh, you know, this is a it's not an easy environment, but it's a really interesting environment for active stock picking. How do you avoid value traps, uh, especially in Europe and and maybe in, in in Asia, but just generally? Yeah, and actually, my last answer in a way is one systematic way we avoid value traps. Most of the value traps are cheap companies that have low margins on their way to even declining margins. So if your starting point is cheap and high quality, high returns on equity, high returns on invested capital, you're not going to avoid all of them, but you're going to avoid many of the value traps. And then it's the, it's about the fundamental research, right? So we are, our analysts are really helpful in understanding what the secular trends are. And, you know, one thing we always try to do is invest in the companies that do something differentiated, right? So in the consumer discretionary sector, are you offering a better value proposition to the consumer in the form of lower prices, differentiated product, brand equity? Uh, and, and so we really focus on, on the fundamentals of the company 
and, and have sort of various systematic techniques to avoid value traps. We don't avoid them all, but our history suggests that we avoid the vast majority of them. And that, that's, that's knock on with the way we're able to deliver the really strong returns over time. Um, well, I'm sure we could keep going for, you know, for hours here, but maybe just a very quickly, you know, 12, 10 seconds. Where do things go from here? Still lots of volatility in the market. Earnings seasons you mentioned earlier. What are just some key things that you're kind of paying attention to right now? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we're, we're paying attention to uh, inflation flattening out. So I mean, we're not expecting it to revert back to kind of the old environment tomorrow. But having a stable, higher inflationary environment, are, are, are we seeing signs of that happening? Like that's something we're paying attention to. Uh, we're also playing, paying attention to sort of uh, margins, the companies we invest in. The kinds of companies we try to be invested in are the ones with the strongest pricing power. Pricing power is really important in an inflationary environment. So we are paying attention to margins and margin stability in this time period. Great. Naveed, thank you so much for, for doing this. That was a great discussion, and I look forward to chatting again at some point in the future. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate that. Have a good rest of your day. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. You can visit fidelity.ca for more information on future live webcasts, and don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter. Thanks again. See you next time.